we're going to be in James 1 today. So we've got this new series we're starting in the book of James. So James 1, and we're going to read verses 2, 3, and 4. Now, this new series that we are in is called The Awakening. And when we think about this awakening, what we're thinking about is coming alive to the life that you are made for. James, what he's trying to get you to do, he's trying to get you to come alive to the life that you're made for. And here's, what, here's what's going on. There's a story that's happening all around us. And it's a story of the kingdom of God. And James is trying to get us to come alive to that story, to get swept up into the story, to live into that story. And he's trying to get us to do something. He's trying to get us to know what we should be aiming at. So that's the question. What should you be aiming at in your life? What are you actually aiming for? Who is the version of you that you are aiming at? And is that the right version? And it's an intriguing question because it challenges you and it says you haven't become who you're made to become yet. And it's, it's intriguing because the culture around us says accept yourself exactly the way that you are. You're just accept yourself. And James is saying, are you kidding me? You want to do that, you're going to set your life up for no growth, and you're going to be tricking yourself thinking that you are exactly who you are made to become, and you're not. You're made to become more. That's the, that's the point of why James is writing to us. Now, here's your aim. Become better next month than you are this month. Don't be satisfied. Press on to become the version of you that you're made to become. Now, I understand what people are trying to accomplish. When they're saying, just accept yourself. Here's what, here's what they're trying. Christianity accomplishes actually both of these. The tension of this. So, so Christianity says, well, before I say that, if you just accept yourself for no reason at all, it's going to give you a false sense of forgiveness. And what's going to happen is there's going to be things that you've done in your life that you're not proud of, that you feel guilty of, that you feel ashamed of, and that guilt and that shame will not go away because you cannot trick yourself into thinking everything is okay when it is not. And it's going to leave you stagnant still in the same spot that you've been in. Because deep down, you can't fool yourself. And you know that you are made to become more than what you are. So Christianity solves this tension, and here's what it does. It says, hey, hey, you are forgiven, you've received grace, but that grace then strengthens you. This is important, to become who you're made to become. So here's how it goes. God says you're forgiven, and God's like a king. So when you're forgiven and he says it, it's done, it's written down. Like if a normal citizen in the world says, you know what, I've decided to accept myself, I've committed all of these crimes, but I'm accepting myself, so all of you have to accept me too. The world will not do that. The world will throw you in jail because you are guilty. But when the king says it, you're innocent now. It's in writing. It's done. And that's what Christianity has. But even more than that, not just forgiven, but now you have this new identity as a son or daughter of the king. And now, James says, live into this new identity. The king of the cosmos, the creator of all things, has now adopted you as his son or daughter, and now, as a child of God, live into this new identity. That's what James is pushing into us to do. 
So, and, and, and so here's what Christianity ends up doing for you. It, it gives you high expectations of yourself. Like, expect more from yourself, but also be incredibly gracious to yourself. Because that's what God's doing to you. There's incredibly high expectations of you because he knows who you are. He knows that he's made you into a new creation. But then at the same time, high grace. And you take that and you put that in throughout all your life. If you're a teacher, if you're a boss, if you're an employer, you take that and you look at the people that God has put under, under your charge and you say, okay, I have high expectations for you because I know that God has made you for something great, but yet at the same time, I'm gonna, you fall flat on your face, grace abounds. You do that with your kids, high expectations of them, but high grace, and you do that with yourself in your life because what James is getting at is that you do have an aim, a very important aim, and that aim is to be transformed. The thing that you are chasing after obsessively in your life is to be changed and transformed. Now, yes, your aim is God, but if you aim at God, you're aiming at transformation. And if you aim at transformation, you have to aim at God or you don't get transformation. And so, so that combination of high grace, high expectations will lead to transformation. It will lead to a changed life, but here's the, here's the problem. There's a bunch stacked against you. So this world is chaotic. So, so right now, uh, we are in the process of selling our house, and so we've been living with my folks, and we've been living with Elise's folks, and we've been bouncing kind of around, and for a bunch of other reasons, but we're there. And here's the thing. I got four kids. So we walk into the house, and we bring a tornado of toys and messes. And you have to work so incredibly hard just to make things be clean. Like, it's not even improving the way things are. It's like you are like working like crazy to make things just clean. Some, some bit of order. And what James is saying is that, hey, it's, not only is this stacked against you, not only do you, but you have to do better than just keeping it clean. You have to do like a fixer-upper. Like, you come into a house... And you got to tear walls down, and you got to make this house look better. You've got to improve it. That's why people love this show, Fixer Upper, or all these house shows, because really it's about transformation. And we're obsessed with transformation because we know deep down what's made for those houses to be transformed is the same thing is true for us. But it's stacked against you. Everything is moving towards chaos. So what James is saying is you make sure you're aiming at the right thing. And the word sin... In Greek, it's hamartia, and what it means is that you are aiming at something, but you're missing the mark. You've let the arrow go, and you've missed the mark. So, so if your great aim in life is transformation, and you aren't experiencing transformation, then you're missing the mark, which means that actually the Bible would call that sin. So it's not enough just to have a to-do list. You have to have a become more list. And today, James is saying, I know the perfect environment for you to be transformed. It's perfect. It's going to be the environment that leads to so much transformation in your life. And here's what it is. Trials. Suffering. He's saying, you want to grow. That's your great aim in life. Great. When trials come, count it as joy 
because those trials are going to lead to your transformation. That's what he's saying. Difficulties, things that feel impossible for you to walk through, those are there and they will lead to your transformation. It's like you're, they're shedding off your old skin. This dead skin. And because of that, James is saying, approach your trials with joy. What he's saying is, become so obsessed with your own growth and transformation that when you do hit trials, and you will, be joyful about it because it's going to produce something in you and it's going to show you, expose you, what has been true of you now, which is that you are a son or daughter of God. So be obsessed with that aim. That's what he's telling us. So now let me read it to you now. James 1, 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James's new perspective is that we would count it as joy when we face trials because it's going to transform us. I mean, this is a whole change in the way that you think about life. A new perspective. And the mindset says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So this is everything. This is loss. This is heartbreak. This is suffering, pain, difficulties. Whatever it might be that's coming in your life as a trial, change your perspective about it. He's not saying be joyful that you're suffering. He's saying be joyful in what the suffering will produce. So the phrase, count it all joy, is meant to be heard as a conviction. Like a deep conviction that's in you. This deep belief that your aim of transformation is going to happen when you do face those trials. And not only is it a conviction, but it's a settled conviction. Meaning you've already made up your mind before the trials come. In other words, if you don't make up your mind that these trials will lead to your transformation, when they do hit, they, they have a high potential of taking you down. But if beforehand you will approach them, you know right now. So if you're not experiencing a trial right now, make up in your mind right now that this is true, or else when the trial does hit, you're not going to be able to convince yourself that this is something you could take joy in. And you hear people say this all the time. Man, I went through something so hard in the past, and I would never want to do it again. But I'm telling you, it brought tons of growth in my life, and I, I wouldn't take it back, but I don't want to do that again. Now, what are they saying? They're saying, I wasn't ready to grow. And I didn't think beforehand that it would grow me. I only realized afterwards that it would. And what James is saying is be convinced beforehand that these trials will lead to your growth. And if growth is your great aim, then you will take joy in the midst of it. But if you don't have that made up before the trials come, you will not believe that it's a good thing for you. And you will never be able to find joy in the midst of it. And it's important that this is about your thinking. The word for count, this is about your thinking. It's a mindset. Like Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So renew your mind into thinking that this is going to lead to your growth. And if you do that, then when it comes, you can count it as joy. But if you don't, 
You see, your, your mind is directing all of this beforehand, and then the emotions come out in the midst of the trial. So Elise and I went, have gone through a bit of trials in the last two and a half years with our son. And if I told you some of the things that we've been through, you'd just be shocked by it. We don't talk about it tons because well, we, we don't want to keep reliving it over and over and over again. So we just don't talk about it all the time. But I will tell you this, we weren't ready for it. So I've been through some trials in my life, but when it's your kid, it's a different thing. It's a whole other level. And it was, I mean, it's hard. Like, it's hard not to let your sorrows turn to despair. And it's hard not to become cynical. It's hard not to be jealous when you see other people who have a very healthy, happy kids and to look at them not with jealousy, but to be happy for them. It's hard to not solve all of your issues with just drinking just a little bit more and a little bit more because it maybe drowns away your sorrows. This is when the trials come, I mean you are being tested. And we fought through it and things have been a bit easier and we're still here. Church is still here. But when I look at the last two and a half years of my life, I know that if we would have gone through this with this mindset beforehand, it probably would have looked a bit different. And it needs to be said that when the Bible talks about joy, it's not about your circumstances. It's about a joy that cannot go away despite whatever your circumstances are. Now, now there's a little bit of thing that people say like, oh, happiness is circumstantial and joy is non-circumstantial. It's something deep. I don't know if the Bible is actually saying that, but what I do know that the Bible is saying is that if you make, if, if you find the right aim, I mean, this is what James is getting at. Find that right aim, and it's then that you'll be able to find joy in the trials. But if your aim is the wrong place, there's, you don't stand a chance. So talk to anybody. You know, their main goal in life, what is it? To be happy? They want their kids to be happy? The problem is, that if you make that aim, if you make happiness your aim, you're not going to get it. Because think about it. Aim at happiness. Like, what is that? It's such an abstract thought that you don't even know what to do. And so what do you do? Well, you think, you look around and you say, what is the thing around me that I think will make me most happy? And then you aim at that. But the, here's the problem. So we always tend to get what we aim for, or at least get pretty close. So if you're not happy which most people would probably say that they aren't, then here's what you've got to conclude. I'm probably aiming at the wrong thing. So you aim at happiness, you have no idea really what to aim for, and what James is saying is aim at your transformation, and then you're going to find joy even in the midst of your trials, because the trials will make you grow even more. It's, it's just part of a change of perspective. And it seems that when you talk to people who are happy or joyful, you say, hey, how are you so happy and joyful? They have to think about it, and they realize, I haven't even really been thinking about if I'm happy or joyful. Because that's not what they're aiming at. They're aiming at something else. And what James is saying is aim at your growth. You have to change your aim. Aim at taking responsibility of becoming the person you are made to become. And then when the trials come, you'll count them as joy because they're helping you, they're improving you. You know, we want to be happy, but it's almost like the more you want it, the more you aim at the wrong things and you end up losing it and it slips right through your fingers. Now, 
I can tell you, we don't aim at our transformation enough. In fact, here's what we do. We look around at all the problems that we see around us, and we blame our unhappiness for all the problems around us, all the things that need to be transformed around us, and we don't really want to play a part in seeking those transformations. We just want everything around us to be transformed because those are the things that are making us not happy. And James is saying, nope. The thing that's making you not happy is you are aiming at the wrong thing. You're recognizing all the problems out there, but you're not thinking about what's going on in you and with you. James is, this is how James starts this letter. He's saying, look at, right now, let's focus in on you. Not in a self, selfish way, but just like the way Paul talks about it. So Paul talks about leaders, and he says, if, if, you, can't, if, if you don't have your own life together, and you don't have your family's life together, you probably shouldn't be leading. Because how, if you, how are you going to lead people and help them grow if you're having a, trouble, trouble, a hard time getting your own life together? And this extends every, I mean, this is with everything. We look at stuff around us, we look at the world around us, and we think about all the things that are wrong with the world, and we're never looking at what's wrong with us. So we have these problems and we ignore them. And it's so easy to see what's wrong with everybody else and everything else, and we can spot it so quickly, but we are very slow to look back and say, okay, but yeah, but what's going on with me? Like, I'm not happy. What is my part in this? So, we look at what's wrong with the schools. We look at what's wrong with the government. We look at what's wrong with churches. We look at what's wrong with who's the president, who could be the president, who isn't the president. We just go on and on and on. Meanwhile, if we would just look at our own life and see what's going on there, I'm telling you right now that there is such a greater impact on the quality of your life if you will look at yourself versus looking at who's in charge. Like you have so much more impact on your life if you just focus in on what's going on with you and fix that first. Get your life together, your family's life together, then start thinking about all the other stuff. The best way, if you think there's something wrong with our country, the best way to fix it, focus in on you. See what's going on in you, and then start from there. You know, the most unhappy people are always so quick to find out what's wrong with everybody else, but they're very slow to look inside and see what's going on with them, and it's all about the aim. They're aiming at something that's not what James is talking about. In fact, psychologist Carl Jung would say that one of the biggest problems we have is we're always looking at what's wrong with other people, and we're so quick to see it. And he says, the irony is, the thing that we see wrong with everybody else is the thing that is actually wrong with us. But we project it on other people, we, we, we complain about it, but really what we need to do is start turning our eyes to look inward and see what's going on. Well, it's fascinating. So blame your problems on everybody else and you will remain joyless because your aim is on the wrong thing. Don't try and change the world by saying if only this leader or that leader or this would be fixed or that would be fixed. You have such, so much potential for impact in the world around you if you would just look like, 
What's my aim? My own transformation. You have no idea if you focused in on that, what would happen in the world around you. And the premise of Christianity, look, do you understand? Like, Jesus Christ took responsibility for the sins of all of the entire world, placed them upon his shoulders, was punished in the place of all of our sins. He took responsibility for every person's sin. Now think about that. He put him on his shoulders. And then what do we do? We're supposed to become like Christ, which means we take responsibility for the things that we've done. But not only that, like... We get our life in order, and then we take responsibility for what's going on in the world around us, and then we start helping to put that together, but we start small, right? The book of James is about your aim. What are you aiming at? Work your faith out in your life, not by forcing others to live the way that you know you ought to be living but aren't living, but start with you and then move on. And when you look at yourself and obsess about your own growth, not in an unhealthy way, right? Because I did this thing for a while where I was like, I got to grow, I got to grow, I got to grow. And it became like, my God, like, I got to grow. Like, it was a God for me. Not like that, but you're just obsessed at becoming who you are made to become because, well, we'll get to that. So it leads to a transformed version of you when the trials come. And so here's something funny. I think it's funny. Well, it's probably not funny. Maybe it's sad. So uh, they have this, they, they did this thing, this test with rats. And what they found is that if you reward rats with something that they really want, I think it was like cocaine, but I don't know for sure, but you gave them something that they really wanted. But before you gave it to them, you shocked them or you did something that was a little bit painful for them. What they found, and I don't know how they figured this out, but they figured it out, that they actually start looking forward to the pain because they know what's coming after it. It's just a complete rewiring of your brain. And James is saying something like that, I think. Not that you are like a rat, not that you're like this test experiment, but that if the reward, which is your growth, is so great for you that you'll actually actually say, okay, wait, if it is true, that I will grow through the trials, I'm going to take joy in them because it's going to change me. So this word, testing, it says test in, in, the, in our text. It's, it's a word that's going back to the Old Testament, this idea of smelting. So what is smelting? Smelting is when you take a precious metal like gold and you put it to the fire and you burn it. And when you burn it, it melts off all the impurities that are around it. And it's not that this block of gold with other stuff becomes more valuable when you burn it. I just, I don't think it is. I think what's happening is it's exposing the worth that's already there. Now go back. You are a son or daughter of the king of the cosmos. That is incredible worth. So the trials burn off the impurities and expose who you already are. So the trials are necessary to come in order for that to happen. In other words, the trials are putting your growth into hyperdrive. And it's not that this it's is a test that tells you like, oh, I got an A or I got a B or I got an F. It's, it's a test that's like the testing of a hero in a story where this hero has to face trials, 
But every time that this hero faces the trial, they grow a bit more. They become more courageous. They become, their character is growing. And what's happening is each time they grow, and then at the end of their life, there's this big, huge trial, this big test, and they got to face it. And they, are, they, they do it. They win. They do the thing that they need to do because of all the trials that came beforehand. And that's how you got to think of it, too, because God's in control of all things. So he has a purpose for you. He has a destiny for you. And it's big, probably bigger than you realize if you just walk into it. And what that means is that each trial and each test is preparing you for something later that's so important for you to do. And you're feeling like, man, my life just has no meaning in it and is packed with meaning if you just realize that this, there's something happening that's important in your life. It's about your personal transformation. So each time trials come, you become more like gold. There's a story in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they have a test. Essentially, they're forced to worship a king, an earthly king. And they say no. And the king says, well, you better... And they say no, and so he's about to throw them into this fire, and they still say nope. So he threw them in, and then the king looks down, and they're still alive. Shocks the king, it would shock anybody. And then, more shockingly, the king sees a fourth person walking around with them in the fire. We're supposed to understand that today is that is Yahweh, the personal God of the Old Testament, meaning that was Christ before he has come. And there is the key to your growth in the midst of trials. Because when the trial comes, you go running right for the king because you have access to him. And it's not no ordinary king. This is a king who is the king of the cosmos. But guess what else he's done? He has faced the ultimate trial of death and he has lived through it. So you can look at him and know he knows exactly what I'm going through, and he's lived through it. So I'm going to cling to him all the more. And guess what happens? This is, this is your unity with him. Like the, the way the Bible describes us in Christ is we are united to him. This is the hallmark of Christianity. You're united. You are one with the Son of God who's come to rescue you. And it's like, here's what it means. It's like there's this IV that's hooked up from you to him, and all of his strength comes pouring into you because of the faith that you have in him, who he is, and what he's done for you. So, this doesn't mean you seek trials, and it doesn't mean you run from them. It means you face them when they come with him. He's gone into the fire with you. He's gone into the depths. He's gone into the pit with you. He's gone into the darkness with you. And he's there with you. In fact, that's usually where we meet him most. And this word is, is that when you meet trials, this is about falling into it. So again, you're not... There, there's a mistake that the church has made in the past where they're like, oh, you should hurt yourself on purpose in order to identify with the sufferings of Christ. That is not what James is saying. He's saying when the sufferings come, you face them with him. And look at this. James says, be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. It does not mean that you reach perfection in this life. The Bible is very clear that that does not happen. But what it does mean, I believe, is that each trial is bringing you to the point of completion of that transformation. So that transformation process has been completed. Well done. You did it. Perfect and complete in that trial. Now maybe there's another one coming. And this makes sense because the ultimate trial is death. 
And then the Bible tells us after we face death, we go and see Christ face to face, and when we see him, we become just like him. So it would make sense that the smaller trials that we face all throughout our life would be a subtle death, a smaller death, and each of those little deaths would strip us of our old skin and expose more of who we are, which is a child of God. We're living into our new identity. And that leads us to this important part, endurance or steadfast. So while the trials and the suffering, they put your growth into hyperdrive, it's not the trials that put, your, put you into hyperdrive with your transformation. It's the endurance that you have by your faith. So the word for steadfastness here, it's about an active steadfastness, meaning you, you're not passively just suffering and like, oh, this sucks, I'm suffering. It's like you're actively teasing out your faith like you're stretching it out over a long period of time. And you're saying, okay, I'm facing this trial, but it's not about a trial that's today or tomorrow. This trial might never end. So your endurance or your active steadfastness is stretching your faith out over a long period of time. This is, I mean, this is requires work to believe. Like, it's not that you're working your way into belief, but you're working and reorienting your mind to believe that all that James is saying here and all that the Christian faith says is true. And it's a fighting to have faith in God, but it's not a fighting to have faith in yourself. And there is a problem today, and it's specifically like the self-help movement is saying you got to have more faith in yourself. And that's not what James is saying. So, so well... Okay, let me say this. The self-help movement books or thinking will help you because it's getting the attention. It's like saying like, okay, take some responsibility for you. So before you're like, nothing's on me. The self-help movement says, no, you have to do something. Like what James is saying, do something about what's happening. Take some responsibility. However, James is saying there's still yet a better way. Not faith in yourself, but faith in the one who has come before you. So, here's what he's saying. He's talking about a faith in Christ that endures through the trials because you're tapping into the strength of someone who is outside of you. The same strength, okay, so think about this. The same strength, Jesus endured the cross, the same strength that caused him to endure the cross. By faith, you're united to him, and so you're tapping into that same power. And you have access to that by faith. So whatever you're facing, you go to him, you have power, you're united to him. Remember that IV sticking right in you, so you have that same strength that is available to you in him. And you have to actively seek to figure out how to live that out. So, let me explain something very important here. So throughout history, cultures have hung on to these stories, these myths, that have said there is something outside of us. There's something greater than what we see here. There's some form of some kind of God of something. And in all of these stories, these people are always tapping into a power that is outside of them. But what has happened today is that we are increasingly seeing in our culture that 
there is a belief that there is no God or there certainly isn't a personal God. So you, here's, what, here's what then you'd start doing. Well, if there's no power outside of me to access, then what must I do? Oh, it must be in me. And so we start trying to tap into a power that is within us. And it's crumbling us. See, we're crumbling in on ourselves. We're destroying ourselves because we're trying to get a power from us that is, like, this is all we are versus a, an overflowing well that we could be drinking from. So we are incredibly thirsty. So I, I've been studying a lot of psychologists and philosophers who started writing during this period where basically society said God is dead. There's none. No God. So here's what they said. If we're taking God out of the picture, and they didn't necessarily agree that it was a, they didn't say it was a bad thing, but they're saying if we're taking God out of the picture, then that means we're not going to know what we should value. It's also going to mean that we don't have meaning in life. This is what the smart people are saying. So therefore, if there's no meaning, we're going to have to figure out what we should value, and we're going to have to figure out how to convince ourselves that there is meaning in this life. Because when suffering comes, and if there is no meaning in your life to you, then that means the suffering is meaningless. And you want to know the worst kind of suffering? The suffering that feels meaningless, like there's no purpose behind it. And so what they said is, well, let's figure out a way to create some meaning. But they said, well, this has to be the Superman. This has to be the, the, the essentially nobody lived up to it. And so at best, what you can do is if you feel like there's no, there is no God, what you come up with is this. My suffering was horrible. But maybe this is happening so I could help someone later on. And that's probably true to some degree, except you really think about it and you say, wait, but what's the point? Because they're going to be gone, I'm going to be gone, dead and gone, that's all that there is, we're done. It all starts to feel incredibly meaningless. And when that happens, you have no desire to endure. And then is when the real suffering hits, because you start hitting a despair that has no meaning behind it, and you just sink deeper and deeper into your sorrows. And you get to the point to where you might not ever come out of it. It's the worst kind of suffering. You start saying stuff like, this is too much for me. I can't handle this. I'm done. But if you will allow yourself to have hope that there is more, not only that, you have a God who has come and he knows exactly what you're going through because he's gone through it already. This idea of a suffering God gives us someone to go running to in the midst of our suffering. Faith in God is the most practical thing that you can do in your life because if you don't have faith in him, everything starts becoming more and more meaningless and the suffering hits, and you don't know what to do about it, and you've got nothing to cling to. Okay, so you have to endure. Your faith has to be stretched out over this long period of time. So, you, so here's what we do. Let's go back. So joy in the trials. Got it. Take joy in the trials. Because why? It's going to lead to my transformation. Okay, but in order for that to lead to my transformation, I have to endure with faith. You got it? Now here's the question, and this is the key question. How do you endure? How are you going to get the strength to do it? Here's the answer. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What's your aim? Your transformation. Turns out it's the same aim that Jesus has. The whole reason he's here, the whole reason that he came is for you. His great aim is to make you holy, to make you be with him, to make you eternal, to make you be with him forever and always. His aim is your transformation. So if you're going to think that your transformation might not be your greatest aim, well, look, the God of the cosmos said it's so important that he's willing to come, suffer, and die on a cross, rise, so that you might be transformed. When he looked at the cross, you know, before, before he's crucified, he's in the garden and he's praying. And he actually starts sweating blood, which is something that can happen. It's called hematidrosis. If someone is under enough stress, they will actually begin to sweat blood. He knows what's coming before him. And he saw it as a joy. Why? Did he see the cross as joy? No, the cross was not joy. You were the joy that was set before him. Because he knew that when he endured the trial of the cross, it would give him a transformed you, a new you. A you that has been awakened into new life with him forever. That's his aim. Let's make that our aim too. All right. God, we do ask... Well, we want... We're pleading with you, God, that you would help us have this new change in our mindset. That before anything comes at us right now, you would change the way we think about our trials. So that when they do come, and we know they will, God, when they do come, we would be prepared to know that at the end of all this, we will come out like gold. So that now we can take joy when they come. So God, give us this joy. And give us this faith, this faith that has been teased out, this faith that has been lengthened, this faith, faith that has been pulled out over all our life so that we might endure the trials with faith that we might grow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.